My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? computer simulation, a question that has been pondered with exponentially increasing probability as our propensities cannonball towards an uncanny valley between us and a simulated reality of our own creation. So how are we to say, this hasn't happened before, that we are not already living in a simulated multiverse created by God, the Creator, the Grand Designer? Does one have free will? Are we just NPCs? Becoming self-aware, here to clear things up, is successful entrepreneur, investor, futurist, best-selling author, video game industry pioneer, and indie film producer, Rizwan Verk, who's received a bachelor's in computer science from MIT and a master's in management from Stanford's GSB. He is currently working on his PhD at ASU. He joins us today to discuss our simulated multiverse. I'm Mystic Mark, and thank you for tuning in to this episode with Rizwan Verk. I'm of the belief that kind of like pixels, right? Like there's no physical matter, but there is light and there, it's being led up, lit up by information. That said, you know, I've come to the conclusion that I don't think the Mandela effect is so weird. I mean, it's weird, but it's not so weird that it has to be caused by a specific incident. I wonder if it's actually not just how the universe works. It's a mechanism where it's trying to merge together all these different timelines. And when you do that, sometimes you get inconsistencies. It's kind of like the blockchain like a blockchain is a, a series of nodes in time called blocks. That's why it's called a blockchain. But sometimes people will fork the blockchain. And so you have the blockchain going in two different directions. Now, if you ever try to merge the blockchain, well, you're going to end up with some inconsistencies, right? And so I think that maybe what's happening is that we are experiencing, we are playing different versions of the game. We're in a video game and, you know, you and I are in the same scene and we're cranking up this machine that makes all the pixels go so bright that it's going to short out the, the guy's monitor, right? Somehow, you know, it's going to make the entire screen go blank because it's just too much. It's sending the wrong signals or something. And so I believe that could be more of an unintentional side effect. Computer scientist by training. I went to school at MIT many years ago. Uh, and then I became an entrepreneur in the software industry and started a bunch of enterprise software companies initially, companies that, that sold software into you know some of the largest corporations in the world, like General Motors, Fidelity, Etc. And then I ended up moving to Silicon Valley 
and went to Stanford Business School and uh, got involved really in, in the Silicon Valley ecosystem and got involved with video games. So pretty much for the past decade or a decade and a half or so, I've been involved in the video game industry first as an entrepreneur. We created a game that was called Tap Fish, which was the number one game in the app store. And then as an investor and advisor to a ton of different startups, one of my early investments was uh, Discord, which is a pretty popular uh, chat app nowadays. I started off as a game company, not many people know that. And the game didn't do so well, so they created, you know, they used this communication piece and created a separate app that was doing well. Then I went back to MIT and ran a video game and blockchain accelerator for startups a few years ago. And, you know, since then, I've been focusing a little more on my writing. So, you know, I had written a book about my experiences. So parallel to all of these entrepreneurial adventures, I had been doing a lot of exploration of different areas of consciousness. A lot of studies of, of Buddhism and the Eastern traditions, as well as shamanic journeying and lucid dreaming and, you know, all, all these types of things, which was, so I was sort of leading a double life, you know, I, I sort of compared a little bit to, I don't know if you've ever read Shirley MacLaine's Out on a Limb, where, you know, she was out in Hollywood being, you know, this performer and acting in movies. And meanwhile, she was going to channelers and doing all these other things on the side and looking for aliens that, you know, perhaps her colleagues didn't always know about at the time until she published her book later. And so for the past few years, I've been focused a little more on my writing. You know, I had written a book called Zen Entrepreneurship, which was about my experiences with synchronicity and dreaming and, and meditation along with career success and a book called Treasure Hunt, which was all about using dreams and synchronicity as a way to navigate in life. But but really, in the last past few years, I focused on my simulation-related books because I found that simulation theory was one way in which to bring the world of science and academia, uh, where I had spent some time, and the world of technology and entrepreneurship, where I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, and you know, people who are exploring consciousness and the whole religious traditions where I've also spent time with a lot of people to bring them kind of together in a way that we could speak one language that all of these different groups, you know, could could agree with. So that's that's my background. I'm currently at Arizona State University working on a PhD on the impact of science and technology on society. Wow. Wow, that's a lot of a lot of things you've gotten accomplished, Rizwan, and it's a pleasure to have you here, sir. I want to focus on the synchronicity first, if you'll let us. I know this is something you wrote about previously, but synchronicity seems to be something that's generated by podcasting. Let me explain. So as a listener, before I was ever a host myself, I would notice that the the conversations I would listening I was listening to would make their way into my life somehow, some way. And it's it's so subjective that it'd be hard for me to give you an example, but you notice. When you're aware and you're focusing on these things, you notice. And it started pulling me out of my ordinary consciousness and into a, a life that I actually enjoyed living. You know, it, it helped me create a reality that I actually wanted to be in as opposed to the more mundrab lifestyle that I was living previously. So my question to you is, when did you first start to notice the synchronicities in your life? Well, you know, I started to notice them you know, way back in the 90s, even while I was doing my first startup. And, you know, that's when I first became aware of this concept that there could be things that are connected to each other in a way that the materialist science paradigm doesn't recognize. And you know, I think what you're talking about with podcasting is an example of what I like to call a, 
uh, technological singularity, right? It's where technology, uh, synchronicity, sorry, where a technology is actually involved in creating the coincidence, quote unquote, that is giving you some kind of guidance or some type of insight. Particularly, you know, I like to call these different types of synchronicity or hunches or gut feelings that we get, feelings of deja vu. I like to call them glitches in the matrix, right? As clues on our personal treasure hunt. So, you know, back in the 90s, I started to notice every now and then I'd get a random email, even spam, where the title would, you know, kind of stick out to me. Like I remember one, I think it was maybe early 2000s, and it said, you know, the title of the email was, Venture Capital Ruined My Business. <laughs> and it happened to be at a time when I was thinking about raising venture capital for my latest startup, which we didn't do for that specific startup, but I had done for my previous startup and I had had a similar experience. And, and then I looked for that email later and I couldn't find it. But, you know, it was, you know, this, this, this synchronicity of these two things, the thing I was thinking of internally and something from the outside world. And I, and I defined that as, you know, the first type of clue. And clues, you know, often point us in directions, but they don't always point us, you know, exactly where we need to go. They usually give us, I, I like to say, they give us either a sense of direction or timing but rarely both. So sometimes we get a clue about something. Like, like I had a faint hunch. You know, if you had asked me in college or high school, what was I going to do as a career? And I said, well, I'm going to be a computer entrepreneur and then I'm going to be a writer. Now, the computer entrepreneur part of it was more logical. But at the same time, I had this weird sense that this is, you know, the trajectory that I would follow. Now, how did I know that? Well, it just came through a feeling or a sense particularly the writing part, right? It's not like I had written anything at that point at all, <laughs> being in high school. And, and so, you know, that gave me a sense of direction, but not necessarily timing. I always thought it'd be when I was 28, I would shift from being an entrepreneur to a writer. And I did actually start writing my first book at 28, but it wasn't until I was 48 that I really focused full time on being a writer. So it was decades in the making. So, so anyway, I, I guess it's a long-winded way of saying that I think you know, synchronicity is an important type of clue. And, and you can make up your own mind as to where that clue is coming from. Some people say it's our guides, right, that are sending us these messages. In the religious traditions, there's this idea of guardian angels that are looking out for us. But Or you can look at it more from a scientific perspective. And, and this is where it actually ties into, you know, some of the, the material in my latest book, The Simulated Multiverse. But it ties into quantum mechanics and this idea that there may be multiple future selves that are being played out and they are sending us messages back, right? So sometimes we get a hunch about something. You know, I mean, I, as another random example, you know, I was walking around Mountain View, California one day and there was this tall office building and I just had this, this funny sense of, oh, you know, I might have an office there someday. But it wasn't like in the front of my mind, it wasn't logical. It was just kind of one of those little things. And this has happened to me for buildings where I bought condos and lived in. But in this case, I ended up having an actual office there. That was the time we had that, that most successful game and, and we were quite successful at it. And so it was interesting. I feel like significant things in our future send information back to us in time. And that there is an interpretation of quantum mechanics that was explained by Fred Allen Wolf in his book, Parallel Universes and, and Yoga of Time Travel and a few others, where rather than saying these are just probabilities, these are actual futures that are sending information and whichever one we clue into, that's what we're noticing. And so, you know, and I've gone a little bit further in my latest book to say we may be getting information not just from the future, 
but from parallel versions of ourselves who took a different path. And that path went along, just like when we compute simulations, we compute different possibilities. And we're getting strange deja vu and, and hunches of those other lives. So anyway, that, that, that kind of relates to this whole idea of synchronicity and clues, but tying it back to this idea of the simulation as well. Mm, yeah. And it's something that hits people in, in a very personal way. So to have someone like yourself analyze it and, and be able to add the perspective that you have to something that anyone can experience, right? Anyone can experience synchronicity, but very few people have the training and understanding that you have. So when it comes to synchronicity, do you think that when we're connecting with these parallel versions of ourselves, that there is a choice operating subconsciously like you know almost like a karmic thing like if i do this then i will end up closer to that parallel reality or if i do this so now like these parallel versions of myself are almost competing like no 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 come down this version of reality it's better <laughs> trust me right yeah i do think there's something like that going on and you know i i talked about this in my book treasure hunt which was all about noticing these clues and you know i drew out a graph that said if you start here you have these say these two choices. You go from A to point B or C. And then from C, you can go to D or E. And from B, you can go to F or G. And if you think of it as a graph, right, of these different places we could be, you could get to the same point by going different different directions, right? You and, and, and maybe the end of the, the graph for this specific lifetime would be, you know, the bodily death and moving on to whatever comes afterwards. But there may even be multiple versions of those, right? Because there are multiple ways. And so it's possible that these parallel selves are calling out to us. It's also possible that there's part of us that is outside the simulation, which is the physical world, that is looking at into and evaluating these possibilities and then saying, well, you know, if this thing happens, then you're going to end up doing this, right? Like, like if you go to this university, you end up living in a city, you may end up marrying this person. Or if you go down this path, you may end up, you know, dying in a helicopter accident, right? And, and so, you know, it, in evolutionary theory, they, they call this idea, of, you know, these algorithms for evolutionary algorithms where you try out different things and you have what's called a fitness function. Now, they just have a simple number and says, okay, whichever path gives you the best number and there's a whole thing called genetic algorithms that works this way in computer science, and then that's the path we take. But in this case, the fitness function is not necessarily you know, a number. The fitness function may be which of these leads to a better outcome for myself, but also leads to the fulfillment of more karma or things that I had set out to do versus not, but we're still free to make choices along the way, right? So it's almost like we're getting guidance and we're seeing what the possibilities are, but it's still up to us you know, to make those choices, I think. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, speaking for myself, I've noticed that guidance during certain states of consciousness that were induced by cannabis or mushrooms where, you know, a book, a spiritual book would tell me, oh, you're interacting with your higher self. But there is this layer that you're showing us where, you know, we don't have to put a subjective overlay on it. it it's as simple as there is something outside of this third dimension that is communicating with us. Can I, is that true to say, or, or is that maybe adding too much? Yeah, no, I think that's, that's, that's right. Or, or that there is some, there are some hidden connections that we can't see. Mm. And, you know, 
there's a, a professor in North Carolina named Diana Pasoka. You know, she wrote a book called American Cosmic, and you know, she wrote about UFOs and religion and technology. But she talks about this paradigm that was first talked about by Jacques Vallée, who is well known within the UFO community because you know he was involved in Project Blue Book and was the inspiration for the French scientist in Close Encounters. And and they talk about a different type of technological synchronicity, and they say that it's where that these things are connected in ways that we can't see, but the connections are there. And I think the, the example that they use is a good one. I think that, that Diana uses is a good one, which is that, for example, you there, there are things called cookies on websites, right? And so like just the other day, I was looking at some backpacks, right, on one website. And then it happened to me on my phone, I was looking at my computer. And it happened to me on my phone on Facebook, and there was an ad for a backpack, right? And now, if I didn't know that there was this thing called a cookie, uh, and this thing called a database of users in the cloud where they track all these things, I would think, okay, these two are not connected. It's just a weird coincidence. But it's too weird to be completely a coincidence, isn't it? And so there's a, a t- potentially a technological basis for how this stuff works. But the associations are not you know, the way we think about them in the physical world. So, so that, that, that's another way to look at it. Yeah. But yeah, I, I do think you can look at it in different, different ways, in different perspectives. From a simulation theory perspective, it actually ties with this idea of the higher self, but in a different way. Because of the simulation theory, we assume we're inside a virtual reality and that everything that's happening here is you know, what the ancients would call Maya or an illusion or what we would, in modern day terms, we would call a video game. And that once we're playing the game, we're stuck in the game, right? But if we take off the helmet, <laughs> then you know, there's another part of us that is watching the game and that is evaluating the game and sending us messages. Just like you know, today, you can go on YouTube and you can watch any, any number of videos of people playing video games, right? They just record their sessions and then they watch it. And so I think this is kind of related to that whole idea. Absolutely. I mean, I remember it dawned on me at a pretty young age playing first-person video games and third-person video games, the difference between, okay, now I'm, I'm in the perspective of the character. Okay, now I'm in the perspective of something else watching the character. It, it, it played with this, this, you know, at that age, because I'm born in 94. So video games, computers, they have been a part of my reality. And it brought on this, like, self-evaluation that I don't know any other way. Like, I wasn't, I can't compare it to a life without video games or the internet. So to me, it's like, oh, yeah, no brainer. Of course, we're living in some kind of video game. But I guess expanding that outward and, and, you know, for yourself, someone who might not have grown up with that same circumstance, do you think that this is necessary to understanding our reality? Like, like it's a natural, you know, it's a natural event for a species of conscious beings to create a fractalized version of their greater reality, right? Like in essence, a computer is like a small microcosm of the macrocosm. Is that what we're getting at with the simulation theory? Yeah, I I think that I'm saying that that generally happens. And that's kind of what got me involved in a more serious way. I mean, when I was younger, you know, we didn't have video games and then we did. So I was, I was part of that generation where like the Atari system came about and we had like Pac-Man and Space Invaders and kind of these very classic games, but they weren't our lives, but they, they were starting to become a part of our lives. And I remember even back then playing a racing game 
called pole position, which, uh, you know, which was for those days, kind of a realistic looking game. It was 8-bit graphics. So <laughs> today you would look at those old games and say that's not very realistic at all. But I would always wonder, you know, what's beyond the track? There would be these people in the bleachers. What happens when I turn the game off? What happens to those people in the bleachers? Is there a city beyond the clouds over there? There's a mountain. Okay, who lives on that mountain? And so I'd always wonder about these virtual worlds, these virtual worlds inside games and what they would be like. But it wasn't until, you know, I got involved in the video game industry myself, and then I became an investor in some companies that I was actually playing with a virtual reality ping pong game. So I put on the headset. And I was at this startup that was across the bay from San Francisco in Marin County. And so, you know, I started, I, I took the controller and I started to play ping pong with a virtual opponent. And it was so realistic. The responses were so realistic, not the opponent, not the graphics, but the responses were so realistic that it fooled my brain into thinking that I was really playing table tennis. So at one point I decided at the end of the game to put the, the paddle down on the table and I tried to lean against the table just like I might if I was playing, you know, with a real physical table. And of course, there was no table. <laughs> the controller fell to the floor. And I thought, huh, okay, so we're getting to the point where we will be able to fool our brains. We're not quite there yet, but we're getting there. And this may be the first time in history where we're that close. And so I laid out the 10 stages of technology that would need to be developed in order to get to what I call the simulation point. And the simulation point is the point at which we can create a fully immersive matrix-like simulation without, so that you, once you put it on, it could be through a brain-computer interface, right? Like in the matrix, if you remember, you know, Neo and Morpheus, they would all plug in through a hole in the back of their head. And once we, you know, and I, I concluded that we're actually not that far off, like maybe a hundred years, right? From now, we would be able to create these fully immersive simulations where you couldn't distinguish between the two. And then it turns out, you know, there was a professor at Oxford named Nick Bostrom who wrote a paper back in 2003. He said, essentially, he said, you know, there's, there's three possibilities, but we'll bring them down to two because it's simpler. One, if there's a technological civilization, it gets to the point where it can simulate everything. Or two, it doesn't get to that point. And he said, if it gets to that point, it will create lots and lots of simulations. And so it turns out if they do that, then there will be many more simulated beings than there are physical beings in the base reality. And there are many more simulated worlds than there are physical worlds, because there's only one physical world that we know of anyway. And so if that ever happened anywhere, let's say in the universe, in the galaxy, then you are more likely to be in a simulation already. So essentially what he was saying was if we ever get there, someone's probably already gotten there. Because we haven't been around that long, if you think of cosmic time, right? And I'm only talking about another 100 years, and computers have only been around, like, what, 70 years? And personal computers is even less than that. And so let's give it 200 years. And think of a civilization that's 10,000 years more advanced than ours, right? They would be able to create these simulations. And so that got me thinking about this whole idea of simulation theory in general. But yeah, that, that does tie to this idea that as civilizations become more technologically advanced, they can simulate and create better worlds in inside computers, whatever the computer might be in, in their case. Now, have you ever considered, and this is maybe challenging what you're saying, maybe not, maybe it goes along with what you're saying, but have you ever considered that our technology as it advances, we're merely just reflecting 
what's around us, right? So the simula we're, we're not in a simulation. We're simulating what the our reality is, right? This is an organic simulation, for lack of a better word. Right. You mean we're simulating it in the physical world or we're simulating it in a computer? We're simulating our physical world inside a computer. Mm. It's like a feedback loop. Like we're, it, it almost yeah. insidiously becomes how we see our reality. Like we create the model and then the model becomes the map, but the map is not the territory. And, and once you become right. so familiar with the map, you sort of, you know, synonymize the map and the territory. Yeah, I mean, that's possible. I mean, I, I think uh, we use this idea of simulation theory as the latest metaphor <laughs> for what could be happening. And if you look back, you know, in history, if you go all the way back to the Vedas, which were written 5,000 years ago, you know, they used this idea of a play, the Leela, like the world is a play of the gods. And then turns out Shakespeare used a similar word, although he's talking about a stage play in his case, right? When he said, you know, we're all, uh, all the world's a stage and the men and women are merely players. If you'll go back to the Buddha, you know, he often used the analogy or metaphor of the dream, right? That the world around us is like a dream, right? And, and he was using it in a way that we, the people of the time, could understand what they were trying to say. What he was trying to say, that there's this world and there's something beyond this world. And that when you wake up, in fact, the, the translation of Buddha is, in fact, someone who's woken up, then, you know, that would be a metaphor that has gone down through within Buddhism in particular, and it's used by others also. But even within like the Tibetan Buddhist traditions, there's like a dream yoga, where you actually try to wake up inside a dream, lucid dreaming, and you realize this isn't real. This is, well, well, I thought it was real, but it's not because I know I haven't been sleeping in my bed. Because I remember now everything that was happening beforehand, right? And then they try to use that awakening when when they wake up to realize the same thing <laughs> when they're awake. And so that was a very powerful metaphor. Now, about 100 years ago, there was this guy, Yogananda, who came over from India to the U.S. and wrote Autobiography of a Yogi. And, you know, he was around during World War One, and the new technology at the time was, was films. Films were relatively new in 1920, and in fact, even before that, during World War One. And he was watching all the suffering that was going on on the screen. And you know, he asked his master, well, you know, how can we allow this suffering? And then the master says, well, think of the actors who are playing those roles. Are they really suffering? I mean, yes, they are within the movie, but that's, that's the movie metaphor, right? That doesn't mean that they are in terms of who they really are. And so he used the term, he used the metaphor of the movie and a projector as, as a powerful metaphor for, for life. And I believe if he, if he were alive today, he would use video game. He would say, well, it's a script like a movie that gets projected, but we can make our own choices. So we can change the script and we can change. And what does that sound like? Sounds like an interactive video game where we're all in kind of a virtual world. So yeah, I mean, I do think there's this, this, this metaphor that we try to understand the world through the technology that we have. And the latest is computers. And when I say, we're living in a computer simulation. It doesn't mean, you know, it's a MacBook Air <laughs> or even a classical computer the way we talk about it today. I mean, we're just learning about quantum computers, which use things called qubits, which are, and I can talk more about that later on, but, you know, that's a whole different model. And perhaps 100 years from now, we'll be talking about that as a potential model for, for what could be going on in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, yeah, I do think there's an element of that where we, 
we convince ourselves, just like you know, the ancients used whatever language or metaphors were appropriate to them to try to get people to understand what we might be talking about right. uh, with this underlying reality. Yeah, no, and then we're using everything at our disposal to better understand what we're in, you know, and I wonder, you know, considering you're drawing comparisons to the Vedas, do you believe that there is a, a creative aspect in this universe? I mean, wh whether simulated or, or not, do you think that if it's a computer or a consciousness, that that is a, a creative element that we're tapping into when we're creating a computer in a lab or, or building a circuit board or, or whatever components go into these amazing technologies that'll come in the future. Yeah. I mean, I do believe that there is a creative component to, you know, reality and that we are part of that creative component in some way. And so we are helping to create it and we create it both through our choices, but also through our insights. But I think sometimes we have, you know, getting back to our earlier point about synchronicity and guidance, that we have kind of these storylines, right? <laughs> that kind of like in, in an actor. And, and some of these storylines may involve creating actual physical things, like we talked about, like computers and video games and other types of things, writing books, whatever that may be. And that we are tapping into that insight of this was part of our role. And so sometimes, you know, some, sometimes we do something that's hard, and, but it's really easy to do. And other times we try to do it and it's very hard, very difficult to do. It doesn't happen because it's almost like there's an alignment between whatever storyline we had and the circumstances at the moment that make it easier to create that. So I don't know if I answered your question, but I think that that's another element I'll offer this. Yeah, no. And what, what comes to mind is the difference between a game like, you know, Call of Duty or Fortnite and a game like Minecraft or any, or World of Warcraft, right? This idea of like, okay, one game, you have just this choice. And if you do not complete the challenge at the, you know, you fail, right? There's no going around it. Yeah. You have to complete these challenges. Whereas Minecraft or World of Warcraft, you, know, you have a lot of creative influence on your place in the game and, and even right down to like who you play with and where you go, where you move. You, you could be very limited. You could be extremely broad. You could do whatever. I think. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that these, you know, these more open worlds, if you will, right, and the ones that have the creative tools, whether it's Minecraft or Roblox or even Second Life, which was kind of a proto metaverse that came out way back in 2004, 2005, you can create things within it. And so I think we, what we have is a combination of those two, right? We have certain quests and achievements that we're supposed to master, but we have this dynamic ability. Uh, and I talk about this in the simulation hypothesis where oh, there's a whole flowchart for how do quests work? You know, how can I choose quests? And we have what I, what I like to call our manifest of quests which is basically our karma, right? It says, here are all the things that you might want to tackle. And of those, you pick a few each time and you say, well, who can I do this with? <laughs> who else can I play this particular, you know, karmic relationship with? And some of it depends on who's around, where you are in the game. And some of it depends, maybe you have obligations. You told somebody you would play this particular, this is like you were talking about with, you can decide, you know, within World of Warcraft or Minecraft or, you know, who you want to play with. You may have a guild, right? You may have a group of people that have a raid scheduled <laughs> at a certain point in time, or you may just be winging it. And so I think, I think those are great metaphors 
for particularly for the younger generation who spent more time in video games, I think than even than my generation and those older older than me. And and so yeah, I think I think it's a combination of those, and it gives us a different way and a different perspective to think about life. And I think that the religious traditions have all been trying to tell us certain rules of the game and certain aspects of it. But they're imperfect because we our memory is imperfect of what we had set up to do, you know, before we, we we jumped into the game itself. But they're trying to tell us what the nature of the game is. Well, and and many religions focus on the moral component. I think that is sort of like what we're talking about in the variety of video games out there. I can walk into a video game store and I can have a variety of experiences at my fingertips. And it seems like what religion has been telling us over and over again is like, based on how good of a person you are, you will have a better choice selection of realities to enter. Do you think that this can be altered if we're living in a simulated reality where maybe the the moral qualities that religion tells us don't apply and there's something greater than that that deems, you know, and sort of creates order, for lack of a better term? Yeah, well, you know, I think within within our video game, right, which obviously people ask me, what's the purpose of the game? And it says, well, it depends on which game you're playing. <laughs> there may be different simulations that you can do. But with, within our reality, you know, I, I, I put a lot of stock in what people who have had near-death experiences have told us. And, you know, I'm friends with Daniel Brinkley, who wrote a book called Saved by the Light back in the 90s. That was a huge bestseller. He was struck by lightning and had a near-death experience and has had several <laughs> since then. And, you know, he, he was one of the first that, that where I was exposed to this idea of the life review. And so the life review is something that is reported by a certain percentage of people that have had near-death experiences. But it comes the closest to, I think, what the religions have been saying without necessarily using the religious terminology, that each religion has its own terminology. And in the life review, you actually watch everything that's happened in your life. You rewatch it, but it's like a holographic 3D version where you can not only see everything, but you can also see it from the perspective of the other people in your life that you have interacted with in some way, whether it's your parents, your kids, your, you know, relationships, people you've hurt, particularly people you've hurt. And so in Daniel's case, you know, he said he used to be in the, in the army and he was, he was trained to like shoot people, right? And he actually shot people. And he said he had experienced what it was like to be those people being shot and feel what they felt. But more than that, there's this idea of the ripple effect where you can see what ripple effect that had. Like if that person was shot today, what ripple effect does that have on their kids, on their what? And turns out, you know, some of the religions do talk about this in various ways. And that in Islam, there's this idea of the scroll of deeds. And, you know, then they're using a metaphor from 2000 years ago, which is a book or a scroll. And where two angels write down every little thing that happened. And then afterwards, you have to review your scroll of deeds. And they even talk about this ripple effect. You have to see not just what your, your deeds did, but what they did to other people that are like second and third order effects. Right? And that comes pretty close to describing you know, this idea of the life's review and how it works. And so you know, the, a few years ago, when I was thinking about this virtual reality stuff, I was playing, uh, I was involved with a startup where we, we put on a virtual reality headset 
And we could go into a session of League of Legends or Counter-Strike Global Offensive, which is a shooting game. And we could go to any point within that gameplay and we could experience what it was like from that perspective. Now, we only did visuals, but it it was weird. And like, if I had been the guy shooting, I could literally go and be the guy who got shot and see what that was like. Now, I couldn't feel what that was like because our video games don't have emotional uh, connections and there's no brain-computer interface. But that reminded me so much of the life review that that's where I started to really draw that comparison that, well, if this can happen, then how does it happen? So, I, you know, I'm a computer scientist and engineer by training, and I realized, well, they have to be recording it somewhere, right? For this to happen, it has to, everything has to be recorded, which is something we do when we play video games. And so the metaphor, you know, works as well within that overall. So I think that is where the morality of most of the religions tries to come from. Uh, where there's the golden rule, right? If you look at the essence of the golden rule is, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, th- because you are going to be them, <laughs> you're going to experience what it was like to be them. And so that, so that helps us to get a frame that maybe our game is not Grand Theft Auto, right? Our game, the way you level up and you succeed is by doing these things that will show that you played a good game and that you will review it and say, you know, well, maybe I didn't do such a good job there. I didn't do such a good job there, but you don't give up. Perhaps you have other opportunities to go back in the game and try to play with with play you know with those people again and try to be better. Now that doesn't mean some people don't choose. Obviously, some people choose experiences that kind of lead them down in the Grand Theft Auto world, right? and that's from broader perspective. That's part of their learning experience as well. I think so. So you know, there may be other simulations that are not similar to ours, but at least in this one, that does seem to be part of the purpose for playing this particular game right and that all-knowing record i've heard it described by certain guests as the akasha right this akashic record that maybe is something like a second dimensional uh, in in everything right because it's a primary layer we have the first second third dimension and you talk about this multiverse graph in your book is this taken into account like is is one of the dimensions that sort of like the matruska doll thing where you have like the largest doll holds all the other dolls inside of her so there's sort of like a inherent connection that they're all resting in this one dimension primarily it's holding all the others the foundation is that where this information is being recorded do you think well you know i we have a term in silicon valley which we say it's in the cloud right which usually means that it's on servers that are somewhere that we can't access necessarily, but we can use them. But yeah, I do believe it's sort of outside. So when I talk about the multiverse graph, you know, I talk about different timelines. And you know, I really got into this when when I was I interviewed the wife of science fiction writer Philip K. Dick, and you know, he wrote quite a few science fiction novels that have been turned into movies like Blade Runner. But, you know, one of the more recent ones with the Amazon series, The Man in the High Castle, you know, which was based on his novel from 1960, where he described the timeline where the Germans and the Japanese won World War II, as opposed to the Allies. And he described that reality in detail. And you may have seen the, the show where some of your listeners may have. But what Tessa, his wife, told me was that he actually came to believe that that was a real timeline. 
right? He wasn't just making it up, that he was actually writing about something that happened. Furthermore, he also came to believe that that timeline was rewound, and now we're living this particular timeline. And, you know, he made a speech back in 1977 in Metz, France, at a sci-fi convention, which kind of, you know, blew a lot of people's minds. They thought maybe this guy's gone crazy, too much drugs or something. And then he said, we're living in a computer program reality. And the only clue we have to it is when some variable is changed or some reality, some alteration in our reality occurs. We would have a feeling of deja vu. We would have a sense of seeing the same things, of saying the same words, of hearing the same words. And he called this remembering an alternate present, right? And which means there was a, a timeline that altered. And so when I talk about the multiverse, I'm talking about the same similar thing to what he was talking about, which is you change variables and you rerun it. Just like when you run a program, you run it one way and then you can go and you can change a variable and then you run it another way. And then you can see it. And so he talked about this idea of all of these timelines being like like suits in a closet, or, you know, or like outfits next to each other, lateral, laterally arranged worlds. But that there were people outside of those who can look at those and who can kind of choose between them. And I think that's for me this idea of higher dimensions gets into that, where all of these timelines, and, and even in the multiverse, where maybe we're doing different things. They're still all within that computing architecture, but then there is the reality outside of that. And what, is, what are we outside? Is it a technologically advanced civilization or is it pure consciousness? Is it you know another, another simulation that's stacked before we get up to the pure consciousness? Maybe that's what we call God is when you go up and up and up and then you get to that point. So, so you know, I tend to think of it that way is that all of this is contained as information, it's it's kind of an ongoing game, and you can watch it in screens. And you know, there was a gentleman named Michael Newton. He wrote a book called Journey of Souls, which is also a very well-known book. And he talked about this this idea of being in between lives and pre-birth planning. And he said, you know, the souls would go and they would say, "I choose, you know, to be Mark or I choose to be Riz," but then they could like turn the knobs on this machine. And they could see what would happen in that life. And they could see these major points where they might decide, kind of like I was talking about earlier, where you know, if you choose to go to school in this university, or you choose to drop out, and you choose to go down here, you choose to go to South America and live there, whatever the case may be, you know, these are like major plot points. And that you can, you can basically see them. And then it gives you reminders and clues where you have to cram and say, oh, you'll recognize this person because of that, they'll have a silver, you know, she'll have a little silver pendant necklace. And if you see that, it's going to jog something in your memory <laughs> that, oh, maybe this is the person, you know, you decided you were going to marry in this lifetime. And, and so, you know, that all, all ties to this idea of clues and this Akashic record being not only what's recording everything, but it's got this weird ability to, to like say, okay, run this other timeline, right? So not to record what happened, but record what might have happened which brings to question, what does it mean for something to happen, right? That, that, that gets a, a whole weird... There, there was another woman who wrote a book, Natalie Sudman. She was in Iraq and she had a near-death experience. And there was an IED that blew up. And she reported, so very something very similar, not during a pre-death, pre, pre-birth, but during the near-death experience, where she saw what would happen if she was injured 
in this way versus that way. Like if her leg was completely paralyzed or if she went blind and she could see how people would react to her in each of these different circumstances. And then she chose a particular path. But she said it was kind of fun, which is odd because it's, you know, sounds a bit gruesome to us. You're talking about, you know, which of these major injuries do you want to have? But you can see how she was exploring these. So it's almost like there's this Akashic record, but then there's an Akashic computer that has the ability to play out these things if you were to make different choices. So, so yeah, that that's kind of my thinking on, on, on this dimension idea. Yeah, yeah. And you brought to mind this joke that friend and boss Sam Tripoli often talks about is, well, it's a a true concept from a book that he's turned into a joke. But this idea that you pick your parents based on their sex style as they're conceiving you, you kind of float, float above them and say, okay, that that guy looks good. He's really making her happy. We're going to I'm going to be their son or daughter. (laughs) That always makes me laugh. But there's an element of truth to that, you know, that, that we consciously evaluate evaluate where we're heading before we head there. I think that's something that people do every day. When you get in the car, you you make a plan where you're going to end up, you know, and and why should incarnating be any different? Yeah. And I agree with that. You know, I I don't know about specifically about the, the, the sex choice, but you know, this idea that we're looking at our parents and we're saying, okay, this, if I go with them, this is how my life might play out as, you know, not necessarily, deterministic, meaning this is the only thing that could happen, but these are the types of things that could happen. And I believe we make those choices. You know, for example, I was born in Pakistan, but, you know, my parents came to, my my dad went to France and then to America when I was really young. And then we came over and, and I grew up you know, in the Midwest, but it was sort of a, it was, I, I believe at some level, I made a choice to join a family where we would start in one culture, but I would grow up in another, which kind of gave me this weird perspective of not quite fitting in <laughs> to anywhere, but that kind of helped me in, in my own life's work, right? Whatever that might be. And in my case, you know, a lot of my writing, which I consider to be you know, very, very important as, as part of my my particular path and contribution here, is about bridging the gap between different ideas, different modes of thought, whether it's the business world and the spiritual world, the scientific world. And the religious world, or the the technological world, and the science world, the world of science and humanity, uh, you know, all of these things, and and I believe that that was part of you know part of the the choices that we've made along the way, and and sometimes bad things happen to us in our lives, you know, or some some physical, like I was talking about the Natalie Sedman in Iraq, right, and Daniel Brinkley had a, you know, I mean, he was struck by lightning, even though he had he wrote a best-selling book, but. That was not easy, right? It was like being burned and took him months before he could probably just even walk again. And so sometimes we we have these experiences which are, you know, if you just look at it purely at the physical, you would say this is terrible experience. On the other hand, if you kind of step back and broaden, you might say, well, did this take me down a different path, right? I mean, Daniel became a completely different person than who he was, he was a bully and he was, uh, you know, in a lot of fights. And, and, and like I said, he was shooting people. He's a very different person, right? Because he saw in that life review, but it was almost like he needed the jar, right? He needed to be shaken up because he was very off, off his path. And I think that happens to us as well. Even in my case, like I mentioned, my, you know, I was telling you about my career at the beginning. The last few years, I focused on writing my books. And part of it was because, you know, I had some serious medical issues. That came up to the point where for a while I couldn't work. 
And I was like, well, what I can do is do the thing I've always wanted to do is ride. I can ride at home. I can take an Uber. I couldn't even drive for a few months. I can take an Uber to Starbucks and I can sit down and I can ride. And that's when I wrote The Simulation Hypothesis, which is the book that I'm probably the best known for and will probably be the one that I'm most remembered for. But it's almost as if I didn't have the tragedy. I probably would not have focused on this. I would have focused more more Silicon Valley stuff, be out there with other venture capitalists trying to make money, more money, all the stuff that people get caught up in. And and so I, I think there's there's an interesting, you know, element to this underneath about the choices that we make. So I guess I think we do make choices for our incarnation, but we constantly make choices even in our lives, as you said, consciously about, am I going to drive this way or that way? But also at a higher meta level where we're making choices about life paths and we may not even be consciously aware because we're sort of inside the dream world and our memory is shut off. It's what the, the Chinese you know, would call the goddess of forgetfulness, Meng Po. She brews the tea of forgetfulness, right? And the Greeks talked about the river of forgetfulness. When we incarnate, we cross the river of forgetfulness and we forget all that. But that's not to say it's not still going on, right? I mean, if if you and I are in VR headsets, we could pause the game, go, you know, do something else and come back and pick up where we left off. Our characters wouldn't know any better, but we've clearly made a bunch of choices and changed things. Yeah. Right. And and I want to go back to the point you made about bridging this gap between technology, science, spirituality, because I think that's is extremely important at the time that we're in. And I wonder, do you think we'll ever get to a point? Because clearly, I mean, we spent the first part of this conversation talking about the allegorical value of this technology, being able to use it as a metaphor to understand, better understand our reality. Do you ever think we'll get to the point where we can augment our actual choices or abilities as spiritual, physical beings in this world with this technology? Like maybe having the ability to alleviate that forgetfulness? Yeah, well, that's, you know, what all the mystics have been trying to do for so long. And whether it's, you know, through yoga, through meditation, through shamanic journeying, or, you know, nowadays you have psychedelics. It's funny, I had, I've never done any psychedelics myself. So, you know, I can't comment from personal experience, but I've had a lot of people tell me, you know, hey, you know, that simulation stuff you're talking about, you know, if you take DMT, you'll see it's all true. <laughs> like You'll see it. And yeah, I think the first person that told me this was Sean Stone, who is the, the son of uh, Oliver Stone. And we were sitting in Santa Monica at lunch and he's like, yeah, you'll see the lines, you know, if you do that. And so I think there are, there are various ways for us to do that. Now, the question is, is it possible that we can do that, you know, with, in a more technological way? It's possible that we might be able to tap into the, you know, what I call the cloud server and what the ancients called the Akashic records to be able to see things. But, but it, it, it gets back to this idea of what is consciousness, right? And I think that that is still the central debate. When I talk about bridging the gap between the spiritual worlds and scientific worlds, that's still the, the core and the crux of why they don't see things similarly is many scientists are materialists. Not all, interestingly enough, and quantum mechanics has opened up a door, but still most scientists, especially physicists, right, tend to be materialists who believe that consciousness is simply a emergent quality of the neurons. Right? There's like 100 billion or trillion, how many ever neurons there are, that if you just put that many connections together, you'll get a conscious entity. And so there's no consciousness outside of that. And then, you know, obviously in the spiritual traditions, we believe 
Uh, although there's some interesting debates on this, that consciousness exists outside, the soul exists outside, and it comes in to incarnate. And and I actually like to frame this for, for the newer generation as the RPG versus the NPC debate. And so the NPC stands for non-player characters in video games. They're the AIs. And so when, when scientists talk about you know simulation, they're talking about a bunch of AIs that are just running based on the bits. But that's not what the Matrix was talking about. I mean, there were AIs in the Matrix, like Agent Smith, right, and the different programs. But most of the people in the Matrix, or at least the, you know, the ones that we were exposed to, were actually existed outside of the Matrix, and they were plugged in. And so I call that the RPG version, the role-playing game version, where you have an avatar that is not you, but that is you as far as the game is concerned, and that is your interface into the game. And this kind of parallels the materialist versus you know the, the spiritual progression of, of consciousness and what it may mean. Now, even within the, the Eastern traditions, there's an interesting debate, because in, in Hinduism, you very much have this idea of an eternal soul that goes through these incarnations. But in, in the Buddhist traditions, they describe it slightly differently. And, and it's a subtle point that sometimes it's lost, I think. But it, it, in there, the thing that reincarnates is not so much a soul, but it's a bag of karma, if you will, right? Which is what is karma? It's just information. It's information about what you have done and information that you can use in making choices about what you will do. And it's almost like you build up this long line of quests over time, and then eventually the, the goal to become enlightened is you bring it down and you stop creating new quests for yourself. You stop creating new karma till it goes to net nothingness or emptiness, and then you merge back into wherever, wherever it was that you came from, right? And so I, I think that's, that's a distinction that's not talked about very often, but I think it's understandable more within this video game metaphor. But yeah, I do believe there are ways we can access that. Uh, and, and through dreams, you know, I talked about dream yoga earlier. One approach to dream, dreams are very complex. I mean, I, I think dreams are one of the most complex and most studied subjects in human history. Why? Because everybody dreams and everybody has been dreaming, right? For thousands of years. So people have been reflecting on dreams since the Bible and, you know, through these native traditions. I mean, I'm in Arizona now. There's a a Native American tribe here called the Maricopa, and they believe that everything that happens to us, we've already dreamed somehow in the dream world, and we're, we're just basically playing it out in the physical world. You know, Carl Jung said, when, when asked, what do you read from people's dreams? He said, I read for what a man is preparing himself. So it's like you are preparing yourself through your dreams. And then I studied with a teacher called Robert Moss, who wrote a bunch of great books on shamanic dream work, like conscious dreaming and dream gates and many others. And, you know, he talks about in the shamanic traditions that dreams are flights of the soul and that your your soul remembers what it wants in dreams. Now, of course, there's a lot of ordinary dreams. And in the Tibetan traditions, they, they kind of make this distinction between karmic traces, dreams and dreams of clarity or dreams of light. I like to call them big dreams and little dreams. And so with dreams, it's almost like all the things that people say about dreams, they're all true. <laughs> it's like, can you contact people that are dead in dreams? Yes. Are dreams just because you ate too much spicy food? Yes. <laughs> you know, are they reflecting bodily functions? Yep. It happens to me all the time, right? Are we also able to contact guides and others and remember our past lives or maybe even live parallel lives? Yes. It's one of the few subjects that the answer is always yes, as opposed to, to no. And that's why I defied science. That's why science can't figure out exactly what the hell dreams are for, because they're not just for one thing. Therefore, all of these things. And, and so that is another way we can get access to it. But 
Uh, but perhaps there may be, you know, better ways in the future where we can get access to these. And Raymond Moody, who, who wrote, uh, you know, the, who coined the term near-death experience, and he had his book, famous book, Life After Life, and he worked with Daniel a lot. And, and Daniel was telling me that he had this idea for the, what they called the cleaning bed. It was like you, if, you, if you lay back a certain way in darkness, and then there were other elements to it, and Daniel's working on his own version of these things that he saw when he was on the other side. And they gave him a mission to create these centers with these beds where people would end up relaxing. But with, with the one that I think Raymond Moody did, you know, it was people like start remembering things or contacting dead relatives. Like there's all these things that happen. So I think there are ways that we can get more in touch with that. But there may still be an element of forgetfulness because it may be a key part of playing the game. Like if you forget you're in a game, you know, it's like a good actor. A good actor is not going to, in the middle of the scene, you know, remember something from their physical life. It kind of disrupts the thing as well. And so it may just be that when people are ready, they will be able to open up to that. Like that's part of their script is this time I'm going to figure out what the hell is actually going on as opposed to spending all my time, you know, working and making money and going on the treadmill there. That's what I've always suspected. And that's what's kept me sane because my family's thought I was crazy for a long time because a lot of, of these revelations or new things I would learn, the first you know impulse is to go and share it with as many people as you can. And immediately you'd receive like doubt or pushback. And, and that was disheartening to a certain extent, but motivating more than anything. So here I am now. But let, let me ask you something about RPG versus NPC. I know you didn't quite put it in those terms, but... I notice now in this community of podcasters or even from the listeners on social media, the word NPC is being used to describe what you just described, which is a person who I think maybe just isn't in that state of incarnation where they're ready to awaken yet. Right. And then it's almost a derogatory thing, like, like thumbing yeah. your nose at them, like, Oh, they're just an NPC. And I, I, I yeah. never like to, to think of things like that. Cause I, truly believe that everybody is just maybe a lifetime or two away from not being an NPC. Would you agree with that? Yeah. You know, I was on a podcast the other day and somebody asked me something similar, like, why is it that some people are more interested in trying to figure out this and other people just don't give a shit, right? I'm like, I don't care if it's a relationship or not. I'm just going to live my life. And, and yeah, I mean, when, when I talk about NPC, I'm talking about a more literal meaning of NPC, which is an AI that is within the world. Now, people do use it, I think, in a derogatory sense of someone who doesn't know what's really going on. But I, I do think that, you know, personally, I don't necessarily use it in that way because it becomes kind of another type of value judgment, right? That people, like, I remember one woman asked me, I think my husband's an NPC. I'm like, well, okay, maybe don't tell him that. <laughs> like, she was talking about a literal NPC in that case, right? But because the reality is being created, but, but I think, yeah, it's used in that derogatory way, but it could also be that these people are just playing their parts, right? It could be maybe that these people are better actors than we are because that's what they're there to do is to play that part. And we're stepping back and saying, I don't think the script makes sense, right? <laughs> so it's an interesting, you know, well, thing and to then talk about. The physicist perspective is that you're not fulfilling your role once you start to like waste energy pondering. You've no longer, you know, seceded as a, a another you know point in the a nodal point in the web you know 
That's right. And, and that's, you know, the whole point of Western science is trying to separate out the observer from the observed. And so if the observed start to know what's going on, then, you know, the experiment is no longer valid. And, you know, the same thing happens with simulations. Like there was a philosophy professor who wrote an op-ed for the New York Times a few years ago where he said, I don't think we should try to find out if we're in a simulation. And, and his reasoning was, and somebody else wrote this recently as well, his reasoning was that if we find out, then our simulators might decide to turn it off. Right? <laughs> There's no reason to keep simulating. And, and, and interestingly enough, this concept has been explored in science fiction. So I also talk about the Matrix as the kind of the, the, you know, the most popular incarnation of this. But in the year 1999, when The Matrix came out, there was several other movies about simulations. One was called The 13th Floor, which was based on an old novel called Simulacron 3 by Daniel Galuye. don't know exactly how to pronounce his last name. But in that, in the original book, there wasn't reflected so much in the, in, in, in the movie, although the movie, they said that we've created thousands of simulations. And you're the only one who created your own simulations. And within that, you're the only person who's figured out that you're actually in the simulation. So it was somebody coming from outside the simulation. I, mean, I know I'm giving away the, the, the plot, but this movie is like 22 years old. So it <laughs> should be all right. But in the original book, the, the purpose of these simulations was to do market research and see how people would react to doing different things. And if they knew they were being simulated, or if they knew they were inside a simulator, they wouldn't react normally to it. And therefore, the, the whole purpose of doing market research was wasted, and they were going to shut off the simulation. But they didn't realize they were also in a simulation, and they were also being watched for that same reason. So it was an interesting perspective that perhaps the NPCs, as people call them, have an important role to play in the simulation as well. Right. Right. And, and that also talks or lends to the idea that, you know, we live many lives because I don't think anyone is, is limited to just being an NPC forever. But uh, when it comes yeah. to the observer effect, do you think that explains the wonkiness of trying to study dreams or the, the seemingly, you know, positive conclusion that you always get when whatever question you pose, you get a yes do you think the observer effect can explain that? Because we're sort of, you know, living in a, a simulation that gets like Inception, right? The movie Inception, where it's like a simulation within a simulation now, because we're now we're in a dream. Yeah, well, just finishing up on the NPC part. I mean, I agree with that in the sense that like the first time you play a video game, you're just trying to figure out how to survive, right? And it's not till you get, you've played it many times that you can kind of appreciate you know, elements of how was this game put together, the, the artwork. You can look beyond like, the simple necessities because your character knows how to survive. And so I think there is that element of if you play multiple times, then you get to the point where you start to ponder more about, okay, why is this particular scene here? Why are we doing this? And so I do think that is, a, that is an aspect that people should keep in mind that Perhaps you've played more times or, or you've already had the experience of playing where you were just focused on your survival and that was all that really mattered to you, you and your, your, your family. And now you're starting to think about these this bigger, you know, bigger issues about what's really going on and why. But getting back to the observer effect, I mean, yeah, people, the observer effect is quite interesting. You know, I, I actually think there's a link to the simulation theory with the observer effect. And so most people have heard of it by now. It's this idea that you know, there are multiple possibilities and that they, uh, what's called the probability wave collapses 
when someone makes an observation of a specific, one of those specific possibilities. And the best way to understand it is, the easiest way to understand it is Schrodinger's cat example, which Schrodinger created to just say how, how absurd this whole thing is. <laughs> now, he said, you know, normally we think the cat in the box, which has a 50% chance of being alive and a 50% chance of being dead after an hour, but the cat is already either alive or dead. We just don't know because we haven't looked at it, but it has to be one of those possibilities. But what quantum mechanics is telling us is that the cat is in a state of superposition. And what superposition means is it includes all of the possible values. Uh, so the cat is both alive and dead until someone makes the observation of the measure. And now other people, other physicists have proposed an alternative explanation is the multiverse, that there is a physical universe where the cat is alive and a physical one where the cat is dead. And whichever one you observe, that's the timeline or the path that you've gone down. And so these are different ways of looking at this fundamental problem, which is this problem of quantum indeterminacy. Now, where it ties to simulation theory is that if you think of the observer effect, it's almost like the, the golden rule is only that which is observed is solid. Right? And the reason we can make video games like Fortnite, like World of Warcraft, full 3D worlds where your avatar is wandering around is because of a process of conditional rendering. We only need to render the world from the perspective of your avatar. And that's all that your computer needs to do. Your computer doesn't need to render the entire world. Otherwise, there just wouldn't be enough computing power to do all of that and handle all of that. And so the, the, we, we, if you go back to the 80s, we couldn't make these types of video games because it, we just didn't have the computing power and there were just too many pixels. We had to make games like, you know, King's Quest, which were, you know, very basic. You still had an avatar, but it wasn't like, like today. And, and those games have what's called a pre-rendered world. But the world is there. The bits are already on disk. We just load them up. But today we render dynamically. So the world is not pre-rendered. It exists only as information until a player comes in. And so, you know, getting back to your original question about asking a question, you know, does the, can the observer effect account for that? I think it can in the sense that there may be multiple possibilities, but when we ask questions or we look for certain things, we end up narrowing down one of those. It's also possible that the multiverse accounts for that because all of those things are actually happening. It's just that we end up being currently happening means this one is being rendered. But perhaps another time, the other thing was being rendered. And there's a part of us that's watching all these different timelines. And that's kind of, you know, the, the latest conclusion that I've come to is that maybe there's, there's, there's what we mean by this is actually happening. Because those two schools of thought in quantum mechanics, they compete with each other as different interpretations. And, you know, this side says it's probability and, and collapses, but nobody knows how the collapse occurs. Something to do with consciousness, maybe, maybe not. Something to do with measurement, maybe, maybe not. And then the materialists say, no, it has to be the multiverse because everything is material. Therefore, there's no consciousness involved. These things all just kind of break out. But the problem with the multiverse is, you know, you're really going to have all these separate physical universes. You're like, you're like spawning new physical universes every minute, every second, every nanosecond, every time you make a quantum decision. And so some scientists object. But simulation theory gives us an interesting way to look at both of those that, that bridges the gap. Because just because there's a multiverse doesn't mean they're all being rendered at the same time, right? They get rendered as necessary based upon the computation that is being done. And that turns out is how quantum computing actually works. Yeah. I mean, look at the, the world as the seasons change. I mean, all these animals appear out of 
different cool. parts of the earth as the sun does what it does throughout various parts of the planet. And it definitely feels like that came to mind when you said like randomness and things just like being spawned every second. Like, well, that's kind of like the earth, right? I mean, the earth is spawning life every moment, every second. There's a new organism that's formed thousands, millions of them, right? Yeah, well, especially as you get into the bacteria, level yeah. and, you know, there's actually more of those than there are us, right? Uh, in, in the physical world. Now, that being said, do you think that other beings share this consciousness with us? I mean, we've talked a little bit about aliens today, but what 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 do you consider? I mean, we can limit it to just the beings we know about, animal consciousness, but I mean. Do you think that human beings, we have the whole, you know, hard drive and, you know, like Max, or do you think we're kind of like, you know, because there's this idea that we should have more strands of DNA, but we've been limited to two, right? Do you think we're working at full capacity is, I guess, my question. And do you think there's maybe beings around us that are higher capacity, so to speak? Yeah, well, I think there are, you know, there are probably other beings of the universe or aliens from other solar systems and star systems, right? I think given the, the number that are out there, it's very likely. So I think there are other beings that are different from us, which means they may have more or less capabilities in perceiving. Even what you talked about earlier, which is uh, how can we remember more of what's, what's been you know, perhaps there are beings that remember more about what's been going on. And I think, you know, with all, I mean, I've spent a considerable amount of time with people in the UFO community and, and looking into these things. I was just at a conference at uh, Harvard to the Galileo Project. And, you know, Lou Elizondo was a guest speaker and talking about, you know, the five observables and, and how things that were dismissed by science and need to be taken more seriously by science today, particularly in regards to these things, which seem to be physical crap. We don't know for sure that they're coming from, you know, aliens. They could be coming from alternate timelines. They could be coming from the future. Some people believe they're actually from Earth, which is why, uh, in fact, there was, a, there was an admiral of the Navy of this conference. And it's telling that a lot of the recent UFO work is being done by the Navy because there's a lot of report of these craft going down into the ocean. And so, you know, it's very possible there are bases Underneath the ocean. Now, whether they, they came from somewhere else or they were here along the forest is, I think, an, an open question. But even in the in various religious traditions, like in, in Islam, there's this idea that they're human beings and then they're jinn here on this earth. And they're actually here with us, but they're in a slightly different dimension. We can't see them. But they're existing. And this is, well, of course, what gave rise to, you know, the singular for jinn is genie, which gave rise to the Western film genie, like Aladdin places like that. And there are lots of stories of jinn, you know, interfering with the physical world. And in fact, it's said that they, you know, that they live outside of time. They experience time differently than we do. <laughs> so they can go back in and change things. You know, this this ties to this idea of the Mandela effect, you know, with which which I tie a little bit into this idea of the metaverse and um, sorry, the multiverse and what Philip K. Dick was saying earlier, which is that you change variables. And it turns out in the Islamic traditions, the jinn are allowed to go and interfere with time, but they're not allowed to interfere with your memory. And so we can talk more about the Mandela effect, but one of the odd, odd things I discovered when writing my last book, The Simulated Multiverse, which deals with 
computation, quantum computing simulation, and the Mandela effect is that the reason they memorize the Quran word for word, one of the reasons in Islam is because somebody can physically change the books by altering something. And this is something that, you know, the people who observe the Mandela effect say is being done with the Bible. There are the old verse about the lion and the lamb. Well, if you look, it's not really there in the actual physical books anymore. Yet everybody remembers it. And there are even like, you know, physical objects which show like a lion and a lamb, like, like, you know, drawings that people have made. And then there's a whole subculture of people who say Bible verses are being changed. And, you know, this is, gets back to what Philip K. Dick called the programmer and counter-programmer that are able to go through time and change things along the way, like a game of chess to see what would happen. So, so I guess, you know, I do believe there are other intelligences, non-human intelligences, whether they're you know, physical beings from other parts of the universe or they're coming from somewhere else. And I believe that we, when we choose, we choose to come here or we can go to there, like, like different kind of, you know, different servers in a, in a giant MMORPG. But, you know, people remember past lives in other places as well, where, you know, where, where they remember, well, everybody was communicating telepathically. It wasn't like this. And there's people that are very awkward in human situations. And it's like they remember, you know, something else from another time. Oh, yeah. So, I have, I've had a conversation with a woman named Aurora, who's actually, I believe, in Arizona as well. And she is a galactic walk-in. So she explained to us how, you know, her life previous to an event in her physical body's life, she, what, you know, was a totally different person. And then this event happened and then her consciousness came into being in that past person's body. So the body stayed there, but the consciousness swapped for lack of a better word. And, and yeah, I think that's really, uh, along with the near-death experience accounts, very interesting and for people who haven't been there or had a, a life-threatening incident you know might be hard to understand but yeah i encourage people to go and and hear people who have those claims speak you know because just the honesty in a lot of their stories is is evident but i do want to take it back to the mandela effect because you mentioned something when you were talking about your interview with philip k dix about how there was an event that created an alternate present or, or maybe like a exchange of alternate presence. And I've spoken to an author somewhat controversial, but in my opinion, very intelligent Michael Hoffman, who claims that the Trinity site explosion where they're testing, you know, big weapons, right? These, what did they call them during the Iraq war? Massive weapons of mass destruction, right? This was when they were testing them, right? In, in the Trinity site. And some people claim in the ufology community that maybe this spurred the presence of UFOs because we see a spike in UFO encounters and alien encounters after this time period when the nuclear tests were going on in the Trinity site in, I think it's in New Mexico that took place, but yeah. they also did some stuff in the Bikini Atoll. And of course, Japan received allegedly a bomb. So, you know, that's, it's unfortunate, you know, that they're exploding these things, but do you think that it was merely weaponry or do you think maybe it was affecting the timeline somehow? Well, that's an interesting question. And I think it's one we don't fully understand, you know, from the scientific community. Like, I think the more you get to the fundamentals of nature, 
the more complicated things become. Like I always like to say that the physicists try to find this thing called matter and they keep, you know, looking for smaller and smaller pieces of it and they just can't find it. Like there's actually no such thing as matter. It, it led a physicist named John Wheeler, who, who was at Princeton with, you know, with Einstein and others to say that he came to believe that everything was information. And he had a phrase called it from bit that what anything that's an it, a physical it, is actually based on information because the properties, once you get down to the subatomic level, the only thing that defines these these particles is that we used to think everything was a particle, a physical particle. Then we thought it was a field. But then by the end of his life, he came to believe it was all just information. And what is information but bits? And so it's very possible that once you start playing with that, particularly you know with, with the nuclear explosions, that perhaps you are affecting the fundamental information. And, you know, yeah, there have been increase in, in UFO sightings since that time. Now, it could also be that they're watching us to see that we don't screw up <laughs> the, the physical universe by discovering more things, which perhaps we haven't discovered yet. But, you know, like in Star Trek, you know, they, they would never contact a civilization that hadn't gotten to a certain point which was a warp technology. So pre-warp civilizations, they kept themselves kind of hidden and they observed them, right? And that was part of the prime directive in Starfleet, but that's also how they made first contact uh, in this fictional timeline of the future called Star Trek. And so it's very possible that you know, they're monitoring us, like to kind of like the IAEA, right? the International Atomic Energy Commission. Like we try to they, well, we have to monitor Iran's nuclear sites <laughs> because we don't want them to get to a certain point. It's possible that that kind of sparked a bit of a concern and they're monitoring our nuclear sites. But maybe it's not just the nuclear sites. Maybe there's some additional technology that we haven't gotten to yet, but we're getting closer to. And that could cause some real problems in the fabric of space and time. And that could lead to either potential timelines. So, I mean, there's a lot of speculation on that, I think. But if you talk to Jacques Vallée, you know, and, and you know, in his books, he talks about he thinks you know, that these visitors have been here all along, right? They were reported as fairies and other types of indigenous spirits going all the way back. There are many stories of people actually meeting these physical fairies in, in the UK, and so he thinks this is just an in, latest incarnation of, and so they're presenting themselves to us as aliens because we are a technological civilization. We've we've got just like. If, if, if you were to tell somebody in the 1700s, this person is an alien from another planet you know, named Krypton, they'd be like, what the heck are you talking about? You're obviously crazy. There's no such thing as other planets, other sources. There's not even anything called rocks in the sky. Literally, most scientists would tell you you're crazy. They didn't even believe meteorites were falling from the sky. Right? So today, if they told us what they really were, we would think they're crazy. But we understand enough, quote unquote, about the universe, or let's just say our current you know, percent, let's say we understand 13% of what's out there. <laughs> and we think we're much further than that. But but let's and they say, well, these guys can understand aliens now because now they have telescopes. Now they can understand uh, other civilizations and other stars. And they're, they're certainly starting to discover other planets. So just like in, in the 19-teens, you know, War of the Worlds and the whole radio show, and they came from Mars. And, you know, H.G. Wells wrote that in 1896. So people understood there were other planets in the solar system at that point that could be inhabited. What they are, not another story, but they could have been. And so it was almost like the, 
the, the, the aliens present themselves, whether in science fiction or in UFO sightings, as something we can understand based upon our current dominant paradigm in our society. And our dominant paradigm today is no longer a religious paradigm. It's no longer just a solar system paradigm. It's a universe. Or ga- it's not longer, no longer a galaxy paradigm. It's a, a physical universe paradigm. And so they're presenting themselves in ways that we could at least get our heads around. I'm forgetting which offshoot of Christianity, but there's a founder of a certain philosophical group that in the 1600s claimed he was from another planet. So <laughs> I'm not I'm trying to point a counterpoint there. I mean, not antagonistically, because Riz, I love talking to you. And yeah, I think this world is much weirder than we've been told. And I want to take it back to the Mandela effect, because we're told that the Philadelphia experiment was the Navy attempting to maybe teleport one of their ships. It went wrong. People fused to the hull of the ship, you know, some wild stories about people coming back in multiple pieces after this transition. And I myself, coincidentally enough, learned about the Mandela effect for the first time as I was driving through Philadelphia listening to a podcast. So there is this sort of synchronicity in my life with that. But lately we have all this buzz around this show, Stranger Things, and that is supposedly, you know, play on the Montauk experiment, which is connected to the Philadelphia experiment in some way. And also possibly Montauk and MK ultra, right? (laughs) Those two. Right. Right. But CERN as well. And we mentioned this nuclear research earlier and, and that's what CERN's all about. Do you think there's any connection to this, these groups? And, and do you think they're trying to screw with the, the fabric of the universe purposefully? Like, I know we're kind of beating around the bush here. I don't want to push you to make a conclusive if you don't want to make a conclusion on that. But what are your thoughts on on CERN? Well, you know, I can't speak to intention, but, you know, uh, knowing enough scientists, I don't think they're trying to screw with reality or the timeline. I mean, I think that oftentimes, you know, with conspiracy theories, there's an element of truth to them. That's why we should take them seriously. But if you take them too seriously, you assign intention to people that isn't necessarily there. But that doesn't mean that the conspiracy doesn't have truth to it. (laughs) Some elements of truth to it. And so I think that's kind of what's happening here. But I do think that it's possible, right, whether unintentionally, that, you know, with the Philadelphia experiment, they talk about high voltages being sent across the ship. And so there's something about electricity and light as the fundamental, something fundamental about our physical reality. And we don't quite understand light. It, you know, why is there a speed of light? Like all this stuff. It's almost like the, the essential component of the universe is something electrical. And so it's possible that electromagnetic, that by trying to induce electromagnetic, you know, very large voltages or anti-gravity type phenomena, that we are, in fact, it's like we're in a video game and you know, you and I are in the same scene and we're cranking up this machine that makes all the pixels go so bright that it's going to short out the, the guy's monitor, right? Somehow, you know, it's going to make the entire screen go blank because it's just too much. It's sending the wrong signals or something. And so I believe that could be more of an unintentional side effect of screwing around with, because, you know, I, I'm of the belief that kind of like pixels, right? Like there's no physical matter, but there is light and it's being led up lit up by information. That said, 
you know, I come to the conclusion that I don't think the Mandela effect is so weird that it has to be have been caused by. I mean, it's weird, but it's not so weird that it has to be caused by a specific incident like CERN or you know, a single parallel reality. I wonder if it's actually not just how the universe works. More like a mechanism. It's a mechanism where it's trying to merge together all these different timelines. And when you do that, sometimes you get inconsistencies. It's kind of like the blockchain. Like a blockchain is a, a series of nodes in time called blocks. That's why it's called a blockchain. But sometimes people will fork the blockchain. And so you have the blockchain going in two different directions. Now, if you ever try to merge the blockchain, well, you're going to end up with some inconsistencies. Right? And so I think that maybe what's happening is that we are experiencing, we are playing different versions of the game. And there is, Mandela effect is not just about, so it came about because many people thought that Nelson Mandela died in prison in the 80s and never got out, never became president of South Africa, never won the Nobel Peace Prize. And in our official timeline, he died in like 2013 and all of those things happened. But many people remembered and it turns out it's not just the, the one Mandela effect. All of these types of things are starting to be called Mandela effects, where a group of people have a different memory of something else, like the Tiananmen Square. Do you remember the, the, the guy in front of the tank, who they called Tank Boy? And most of us, I think, remember, interesting question, that you know the tank stopped. But some people remember the tank running him over, and they remember talking about it and saying there was a bloody scene. And, and so now it's like a different event, but it's remembered by enough people <laughs> that it's become a Mandela effect. And there are many others, right? The Bernstein Bears versus the Bernstein Bears. There are logos and movie lines and entire movies that people swear they saw. And they had, and, and most, most mainstream scientists and psychologists dismiss this as just faulty memory. But I think there might be something else going on <laughs> that, you know, especially when it's okay to be faulty memory for something that you weren't close to or it wasn't significant to you, right? But like people remember the Reverend Billy Graham dying you know, years before he did, and not just dying, but he was on the cover of this Christian evangelical magazine as having died. Now, to me, that's not too significant because I, I don't really follow, <laughs> you know, particular evangelical, you know, reverends or pastors. That's just not my thing. But for somebody for who is close to that, if they have that memory, that's very different. That's very weird, right? That would be like me thinking, okay, Mark Hamill died after the Empire Strikes Back and never made <laughs> and never made Returning a Jedi, right? That's something that I would know. Like, you know, it's not gonna be just faulty memory. It would be something that I would have discussed with my friends and everything else. And so the, the more of these incidents that end up having that kind of proximity or significance to the people that remember them. But it's not just like two timelines. It's not like in one timeline that Mandela died and another didn't. If you take all of these Mandela effects, you're back to the multiverse graph. It's like Mandela died, didn't die. Tank Boy died, Tank Boy didn't die. Reverend Billy Rand died, didn't die. Germany won the war, Germany, the Allies won the war. These are all, okay, was assassinated in doubt. So Tessa claimed that Philip actually contacted, was in contact with some beings who said that they went back in time and they prevented the JFK assassination in Dallas. But then he got assassinated in Orlando. <laughs> and every time they changed the timeline, Things got worse, right? And so you, you're back to this idea of a graph of possibilities, which is kind of what the multiverse and the quantum mechanics are telling us in a different set of language. And, and so I think maybe it doesn't have to have been caused by one event. It could be that in one case, we got the bomb. In another case, 
Hitler got the bomb. In another case, nobody got the bomb. And those are actually all timelines that ran for some period of time. So as a computer scientist, we don't run simulations forever. We run different branches, we change variables, and then we cut off certain branches because we don't have we don't have infinite computing, right? So we say, well, there's no point in going down this branch because it's not optimal. We know this branch, these these three branches are the most likely. So we're going to discard these other 50 branches. It's like if you're evaluating chess moves in the future. At some point you say, this is just a bad path. We're going to go on this other path because I'd lose the chess game if I keep going down this path. Let me explore these alternate paths. And so if we're just constantly doing that at some level, then the Mandela effect is sort of normal. It's still a glitch in the system in that when we're merging paths, you know, you should only remember this, but, but if we merge you from the other timeline because we stopped it, which means not just that there's multiple timelines, but as players, you know, as consciousness outside of the, that's why we remember it because we actually were there. It wasn't just AI NPCs that ran it. It's a glitch. It's like, oh no, we ran it. So every time it gets run, it's somehow touching our consciousness because we have to make choices in each of those timelines, whether they are real or computed. Like that's an open question. Mm. It reminds me of this concept of a monad that we almost are like we're one soul in a family of souls and all of them are cooperating through their different alternative lives as a unit to ascend, right? This is something from ascension material, but I wanted to ask you about, and Riz, this has been fantastic. I mean, there's so many ideas that you've eloquently clarified it in a way that I, I really appreciate. But you, you talked about the simulation point, where this point where the simulation will reach such a high quality that we will be immersed in it totally and maybe not even see the difference between our actual reality and this simulated one. Ray Kurzweil talks about the singularity, right? And this point where we're going to get to where AI is going to merge with us. Is there a difference between these two thoughts and uh, these two concepts? Uh, do you think that they are you know, mutually exclusive or, or not? Well, they're not mutually exclusive, but they're both types of singularity. So the term singularity was actually defined by a computer scientist turned science fiction writer named Werner in the essay way back when. And he said there are multiple ways. That the singularity is a point beyond which human life will be different. And he said there are multiple ways we could reach that point. And one of those ways was the creation of artificial intelligence. And I think when people talk about the singularity today, they're primarily talking about that specific type of singularity. But that is only one type of technological singularity. The simulation point is similar in that it's a technological singularity and beyond which human life will be different. And one of the stages in, in reaching the simulation point is, in fact, the ability to create NPCs that are fully intelligent. So AI, and that's intelligent. So you know, they, it's often called post-human when we can create. And in fact, Bostrom, who, who wrote this original paper on simulation hypothesis, he didn't use the term simulation point. That was my term. He basically said, we reached the post-human stage, meaning we can create AI that simulates itself, right? that thinks it's alive. And again, this is the NPC version primarily when, when, when academics and scientists talk about simulation. And, and so for them, it's the same point because once you can create intelligence that's a, that, that is at least at our level, let alone super intelligence, then we're at the point where we can create simulations of many of these because it's just computer code, right? But I define it slightly differently. I say that's one component. So, but this ability to fool the brain into believing we are in there is another kind, and this is, gets back to the RPG version 
that's why I think the fundamental issue with simulation that nobody talks about, as far as I can tell, is other than myself, which is the RPG versus NPC distinction. Uh, because in the RPG version, we would be inhabiting. Now, this is why I like the movie The 13th Floor, because I think it's a better representation of both of those. Like in The 13th Floor, they simulate, it takes place in the 90s, and they simulate, I think, the 40s in L.A., and within the 40s, you have all these beings who think they're real, but they're just being simulated. But the, but the, the people in the 90s can go in and inhabit any of those characters. So it's like a combination. So these two aren't mutually exclusive. I mean, in, in, in World of Warcraft and you know, any of these games, you have NPCs and PCs, player characters, as well as NPCs. And so I don't think it's totally mutually exclusive. But, but yeah, so I think the simulation point is a kind of technological singularity, but it's not necessarily the exact same date that we're talking about to get there. And that's why my date is a little further out than Kurzweil's, you know, and I also think he's being optimistic about AI. AI is improving fast, but I don't know that we'll be able to simulate consciousness that soon. I believe his original date was the 2030s or 2040s. And I believe we'll be pretty far along, actually, by that time. But there's still some fundamental, I think, things that would have to be done before we get there. We're told that he is responsible for some of the aspects of brain dreaming, you know, in the brain, right? Well, that's what's going on. There's DMT at play. It might not be exclusively DMT. But my point is, given what Sean Stone and others might have said to you, do you think psychedelics or chemicals will have to be augmented to put someone into the simulation in a more immersive way? Yeah, if we're creating our own simulations, and by the way, in the 13th floor, you know, as I mentioned earlier, turns out the 90s version was the simulation. And the people from the future came in and they said, we have to shut you off because you're using too much energy because you are simulating, you know, the 1940s. Uh, and that's part of the reason we have to shut you off. And so there is that, that, there's that danger of, you know, what is the purpose of the simulation? But getting back to you know chemicals, it's an interesting question because we don't know how to do perfect brain computer interfaces at this stage. Right? There's non-invasive and invasive, and there's the Elon Musk company Neuralink that's you know showing he had the pig where they were monitoring their brain signals, and then he had the monkey that they taught to play a game, a video game, and then they disconnected the joystick, and the monkey thought he was still playing because things were still moving on the screen, but technically they were just reading his brain signals. And they were just giving the commands. And the game was Pong, the first very commercially available ping pong game and arcade game. Yeah, so, but, but I, if you go back to the, one of the first depictions of virtual reality in science fiction was a story in the 1930s called Pygmalion Spectacles. And it was, you put on these spectacles, but they weren't just glasses. You know, they had like different liquids that were coming out. So you get, you kind of encase yourself in these liquids. Kind of like with the, with the pods and the matrix. So I think there will need to be some interesting, you know, what, what's sometimes called wetware, right? Today we have software, ring on silicon, but there'll be some interesting interface, which will involve some chemicals. And I, I don't know enough about that world to say exactly what those would be, but perhaps it may tie into the things that relate to DMT or, or related molecules and that, that can cause us to suspend and forget Right, some people, uh, you know, that say there are areas of the brain that are more active for people that have had contact with UFOs. Gary Nolan at Stanford is studying that, for example, and that might also lead to more psychic experiences. You know, they can perceive things more, which may also be the case with DMT and other things. Like some shamans obviously have used these for a long time, 
to get in touch with models and their reality. So I think at some point, yeah, if we get to the simulation point, we will need some kind of interface and that will probably involve some chemicals like TM2. Excellent. Well, winding down here, we're, we're coming to towards the end, Riz, and I don't want to keep you for too much longer if you, if you don't have time. But one last question. You're on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and we get into some paranoid areas. Do you think that it's possible that this simulation point will be used against us? Or do you think that we'll be able to preserve our sovereignty, our free will, once we've reached this simulation point? Well, I think it can go either way, honestly, right? I think that, you know, it could become an escape for us to use. I mean, virtual reality has been used to have psychedelic experiences and to do meditation and calm and to to fears of like spiders, you know, different phobias. But it could also be used like social media when people get so addicted <laughs> that they spend all their time. You're talking thinking we're addicted now. Imagine if you were plugged in with your brain and everything looked real, you could go anywhere. There's a there was a, a famous book and movie called Ready Player One, which you know was a movie put out by Steven Spielberg, but the, the guy who wrote it, Ernest Klein, wrote a sequel called Ready Player Two a couple of years ago. And in that we replaced the VR goggles with, with what they call the ONI, the Oasis Neural Interface, which is a brain-computer interface. And at that point, you know, they had to restrict it. They had to say, you can't spend more than 12 hours a day in it because your body will atrophy or you'll have problems. And that's possible, too, that if you spend too much time in a virtual reality, your brain will or your mind will rebel, right? <laughs> There's something like it may be convincing for a while, but then it may cause some other problems and stuff. And so it's possible that if everybody gets plugged into something like that, that just, just in the same way that Facebook and Twitter can censor things in Google, and it seems to us, you know, to at least most normal people that these things don't exist, right? It, it becomes even more possible to restrict reality at that point if, if you're working with people only in virtual reality. I mean, you and I aren't actually talking to each other. We're already virtual, right? My voice has been translated into bits. And how, how do I know that what you're getting on your side is exactly what you know, I'm saying here and visually as well, you know, things could be modified. So it's very possible that there, there could be, it could be used against people at a certain point. If Wouldn't it be hilarious to... if I just ripped a skin mask off at that point, as you're saying that I just have a mask on the whole interview. <laughs> yeah, I would know, right? <laughs> you're right though. It could be that this is all just like some kind of, you know, augmented screen. I mean, people have, fake backgrounds. I was talking to a guest two episodes ago and it took me almost 45 minutes into the interview to realize that his background was not his actual background. He, he had like a, right. a room right. that it looked, was a virtual background. It was, right? it was so yeah. convincing. Well, and Zoom just introduced avatars. They're pretty basic right now, but you, I could be talking to you as an avatar right now rather than as me. Now, as those avatars get more realistic, there, there would be a point. Like I remember in Second Life, where I used to spend a lot of time back in 2007, 2008, when it was very popular. They had these voices. Like once you introduce voice chat, you could talk to people. You could hear what they sounded like, and you'd know, okay, this person's, you know, probably a woman, uh, etc. But they had these voices where you could change your voice, right? You could morph it, so you could talk as if you were, uh, you were male or female or whatever, and that you would say you're an old person or a young person. Or an anime character, right? And you would sound like that to everybody else. And so the spoofing was getting pretty good. Either. And that was like 12, 13, 14 years ago, right? And today the avatars 
aren't quite there, but they're getting there where they're going to be more and more realistic. If you assume metahumans from Epic and other Roblox has a group that's working on this as well, is that we will be doing Zoom with our avatars, which is very much like being in a virtual reality. And you wouldn't know, right? I mean, today, they're still crude enough that we'll know, generally speaking, but but that may not be the case very soon. Wow. Wow. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Folks who want to support you and check out all the interesting work you've done, they can go to zenentrepreneur.com. They'll find your book, The Simulated Multiverse, and a few others. You want to mention anything I've left out, what people can look forward to? you have anything coming up that you're working on now? Yeah. So, you know, one, they can follow me on Twitter at Riz Stanford, just like the university. And yeah, I have a couple of new books coming out next year. One of which is, I talked about Yogananda and autobiography of the Yogi earlier. HarperCollins in India asked me to write a book for modern spiritual seekers that would kind of, you know, look at the, the wisdom in that very classic book and kind of reinterpret it for modern leaders. And so I bring in things like simulation theory and video games. It's called Wisdom of a Yogi, and that'll be coming out next year. Then I, I mentioned my first book, Zen Entrepreneurship, which was about some of my experiences in kind of living this double life between the business world and the spiritual exploration. And I have a sequel to that called The Zen Entrepreneur in the Dream, which will be coming out probably sometime next year as well. Fantastic. Well, I'd love to get a hold of those and have you back on when you're all ready to talk about that. And wow. Like I said, Riz, this has been a true pleasure and I appreciate you spending some time with us here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I got to ask you, does your family think you're crazy for pursuing this work? I think they kind of used to, but now they've gotten used to it, right? They just say, oh, that's just Riz doing his weird yoga stuff, right? right so right. so they kind of kind of write it all, put it all into a bucket, right? Uh, but yeah, there are times when they thought I was. <laughs> That's very inspiring. And, and we hear that a lot on this show. And I think that should make the message pretty clear for folks out there. You know, immerse yourself in your expanding, ever expanding now and find what works for you. You know, don't give up on yourself. But until next time, folks, thanks for listening. And please go to zenentrepreneur.com. Check out Riz's work. You got, do you have a podcast? I'm seeing this now. Is there a, I do actually have a podcast. Podcast. It's called The Simulated Universe, and the, uh, I haven't done it in a little while, so I've been on a bit of a hiatus for about six months, but I, I would interview people who talk and write about simulation theory or have made movies about the idea. People like Donald Hoffman, who wrote a book called, well, I'm forgetting the book now, but uh, basically you know, the, that the, the, the reality is is not real. It's a very, pretty well-known book, I'm surprised it exists. And, and other people as well I had on there who write about virtual reality. And then I had a season about the metaverse. So I had a lot of experts on avatars, virtual reality, video games on. And I'll probably do some more at some point in the future as well, but I've been kind of busy with other things. Wonderful. The Case Against Reality, that was the book that Don Walker wrote. Okay. <laughs> and so, you know, interviewed him and a bunch of other folks. If, if anybody's interested in simulation theory, I've probably gone more and more, more detail in my podcast than most because I've interviewed so many different people that are into it. I don't doubt it at all. Yeah, this has been extremely informative and I look forward to talking to you again. For everyone listening, please go check out all of Riz's work and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. Here we are, ladies and gentlemen, and what a conversation with Riz Verk, aka Rizwan Verk. 
Wow, definitely a guest you want to follow up with. A lot of dense material, but a lot of connections across a wide variety of fields of research. That's why it was such a great privilege to have someone as esteemed and as intelligent as Riz on this show. And I hope to continue to find guests at that standard uh, of interest. Maybe not everyone's going to be a MIT graduate, uh, but when we can find a guest like that, it's pretty cool and it's worth noting. So uh, another great episode here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I expected Riz to be a little bit more of a, a academic type and I was surprised to find that he was very laid back and chill and even before and after recording he was very kind and, and chill and yeah it was just interesting because I expected to debate Rizwan to some extent I thought like you know oh maybe you know I'll have a chance to tell him why I disagree with simulation theory because I sort of expressed it a little bit but I found that everything he had to say was a little bit a above my uh, pedigree to even argue against and be um, agreeable you know it sort of can fit into uh, multiple different worldviews it's, it's more of a formula or, or a uh, structure which to view this very dense information uh, and maybe I'm just saying that because um, underestimating myself and overestimating others we got to remind ourselves not to do that because hey you know we have our doubters our families think we're crazy so we can't doubt ourselves we have to believe in ourselves and i am practicing that positivity by sending this positivity out to you the lovely listeners and also by setting this goal and the intention here right now uh, to have challenging guests like Rizwan on the show more often uh, not just people that I agree with not just people that I uh, have things to say to things that I have never heard of before uh, weird way of phrasing that Christopher Bjerknes that was a guest who brought a lot of new information uh, to my plate not everything uh, did, did I walk away with thinking oh this is you know gonna be integrated into my worldview, but nonetheless, interesting, interesting information. Uh, today, again, another guest where, you know, maybe don't totally agree on how he sees the world, but that's neither here nor there. Some of the information is worth integrating, and, uh, and I'm, I guess I'm pointing that out, you know, that each guest has their own unique piece of the puzzle to contribute and that's what we're looking to do here is to synchromystically break down the matrix as i said when i started the show and i wrote the episode description here we are episode 203 and i need your support folks help me out and my family thinks i'm crazy podcast is growing we have so many more patrons signing up day by day more and more and I just want to give a spirit animal name to a friend, a supporter. His name is Billy. He's in the Telegram. He's been supporting for a little while now. And I'm going to give him a spirit animal name. 
All right, your spirit animal name is the Dancing Owl. You got the Owl card and you got the Sacred Dance card, which reminds us to dance with the cycles of life, the flow of life. Learn to be uh, the sacred dance partner to the harmony rhythm that is your ever expanding now. Uh, Shout out to Zach. Thank you for your support, brother. And shout out to everybody who supported the show everyone who's picked up a copy of the synchro mystic exploration of the ever expanding now edition one travel guide uh, travel guide to wherever you find yourself in your ever expanding now and of course um, we have a new way to support the show uh, and support yourself a synchro wisdom dialogue that you can book with yours truly uh, if you're in the need for podcast advice just general chat esoteric you know talking to somebody maybe you don't have uh people like myself or like minds to speak to Uh, maybe you're comfortable with what i have to say and you'd like my perspective maybe you'd like to collaborate on a creative work really any excuse uh, is fine with me and i will do my best to share my synchro wisdom and what i think uh about whatever it is you'd like to talk about. Uh, But my time is valuable, so I have no shame in uh, putting this out there in the world as a, you know, value for value kind of thing where you can uh, book me for my time uh, and I will share what I've learned with you depending on uh, what comes up. Really, uh, no limits. uh, And yeah, the link is in the description. You just go to the link tree uh, link tr.ee slash mystic mark podcast and uh the cool thing is i'm going to record our synchro wisdom dialogue and you will have the option to keep it for your own personal use uh, forevermore listen to it whenever you want your own private podcast between you and i or you can uh allow me to share it on the patreon for other people to listen to and gain something from because depending on how personal we get or maybe we talk about podcasting or whatever we talk about uh it will be of value not just to you and i but uh, to others who may want to listen in uh and then you know if something is exceedingly excellent it might make its way to this podcast feed i don't know who knows maybe you have an incredibly compelling story you want to share and this is the only way to make it onto the podcast well that works too uh who knows what'll happen i'm leaving it up to chance right chance synchronicity we'll see what happens and um one other thing i was gonna say oh yeah and uh also you know if uh if you want we can put it on the patreon not just for supporters but also for free um either way It's going to be a cool thing that I'm going to start doing. I already did a sort of test run uh, over the past few months. I've been speaking with a gentleman who's having me collaborate on a movie that he's putting together. Shout out to my buddy Joe. You know who it is. And uh, so, yeah, Joe has been paying me. And, you know, I thought this is something I can expand to other people who maybe are in a place where they can afford to book me for my time to share what I've learned or 
my advice, my perspective, uh, no matter what it is. Like I said earlier, could be a collaborative project like this case, could be like what I did this evening where I helped a nice gentleman who I just met uh, named Spencer start a podcast. He's going to start his own podcast and he's going to join me on this podcast at some point soon. So, and you know, for he booked me for an hour, we ended up spending almost two hours talking and I gave him pretty much all the advice I could think of, uh, of what he should do in his first steps to start a podcast. So, you know, coming from someone like me with two years experience, you know, maybe that's like, oh, well, you know, I could find someone who's more experienced than you. Sure. But are they offering this? Maybe not. Are they me? No. Are they going to have some synchro mystic wisdom to add in there? Probably not. So. It's worth considering if you're a podcaster or you're thinking about starting a podcast. Uh, I could really help advise or consult with a podcaster at any level, uh, help you with whatever strategy you'd need. That's kind of partly what I do with Alt Media United on a pro bono basis. So if you do have a big podcast, get in touch with me or a medium podcast or a small podcast. How do you even measure a podcast? By how many people listen? Who cares about that anyways? What matters is how big your spirit is and is your spirit alive in the podcast. And you know what? These outros and intros have been kind of mellow lately. That's because I've been doing them in the wee hours of the night. And I need to stop doing them so late into the wee hours of the night. I need to uh, start doing these in the morning uh, and have some energy, some pizzazz, some vibe, uh, like I used to in the olden days of the early days of the show. There is more energy in the intros. Uh, I don't know what it is. Just uh, doing things like a night owl lately. So uh, expect that change coming up soon for me. And uh, yeah, that's about it, folks. I kind of trailed off on the whole uh, synchro wisdom dialogue there. But yeah, I've, I've been taking people on as clients for that for a little while now. And I think I'm going to open it up to anyone who's listening who might need something like that in their life. Uh, just to chat even, you know, I'm not opposed to that uh, for 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes. And, you know, I'm flexible. And depending on how the conversation goes, I'm not going to be so strict about, you know, how much time. But, you know, pay for what you can afford, and uh, I'd love to talk to you. Uh, until next time, folks, support us on PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon, Rockfin, Ko-fi, Buy Me a Coffee, all the places. You can buy merch at the Teespring. I just put a new mug for sale. Uh, blunts, coffee, and podcasts. I don't know. It's corny. Maybe you'll like it. Maybe it'll shock your family. Who knows why you need a mug? I like mugs. I drink out of mugs. I only drink out of mugs. I don't do anything else with mugs. I just drink out of them. I don't do anything else. That sounds suspicious. I don't know. You be the judge. Anyways, have a good one. Love everybody who listens. Uh, you mean the world to me. Thank you for your support. And have a wonderful time immersing yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Good couple of weeks of shows. 
you know? Mark is doing a great job, even yeah. though he drives me fucking nuts yeah. sometimes. He's great. No, he's done a great job. He's done a great job. Good job, Mark. You can call uh, me Mark Palmer, Mark Palmer's cool. Mark Palmer's It's a beautiful day to be alive. Motherfuckers, it's a beautiful day. Beautiful day. It's a beautiful day to be alive. That's all I gotta say. I don't think it's about money. I think they have so much. It's just about... It's a spiritual war, dude. It's so much farther. There's more power with spring flowers than pseudo-intellectuals filled by hate with the face sour. When it comes to the hour of reckoning, recollect, reconnect with days happening. Yeah, are you frowning or laughing? Are you making the grain or barely passing? Caught in the asinine like the afterlife. Obsessed with darkness after you master light. Cause it's faster than a blink. When it's a bastard latched to the clank, clang, the money don't mean a damn thing. Think happiness ain't coming from the bank, dang. I'm out here daydreaming. The spirit's the egg, the self is the semen. Uh, and that's cause life is the child. And it takes a village to give it the illest style. So, if your family think you crazy, mm, and you ain't got a village, no, you always got a place here. Come kick it, we chillin'. Exactly, dude. You get it, bro. You're so smart, everybody. You're so smart. Feel like I'm waking up for the first time. Crusty's on my third eye, but I'm back to the grind. Pop the blinds open, let the sun shine. Feel it on my skin like it's been some time. Sometimes depression got me plaguing like Sisyphus. Others got me messing with mania like Icarus. And meditation helps with the sickness. Some say it's human condition, but it just isn't. There's more power in spring flowers. The circular thoughts that leave the mind devoured. Blurred lines between reality and fiction. And some politicians get dirtier than dishes. But for a minute, just forget about the government. I'm looking at you and I and where the love went Cause we don't need a fucking village full of cynics Need a family to foster a life worth living if it isn't And your family think you crazy, yeah And you ain't got a village I know you always got a place here Come kick it, we chillin', yeah I'm a conspiracy boy Mark Palmer's cool. How are you, brother? I'm great, man. I 